Welcome to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, Greg and I answer listeners' questions about the keto diet, rapid fat loss, carryover between the squat and the deadlift, corrective exercises for faulty movement patterns, and much more. To finish off this episode, Greg and I share some great reading materials for trainers that are looking to expand their training knowledge, and we also share some tips for students that are looking to excel academically. If you want one of your questions answered on a future episode, check the description of this episode. You'll see links to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter threads where you can get those questions submitted. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, in the Q&A episodes, there is no time for any shenanigans or tomfoolery, certainly no skylarking, so we're going to jump right in. The first question is for Greg. The question is from hy.freeman, and the question is, do you have to squat in order to reach your ultimate deadlift potential? So, Greg, do you have any knowledge bombs to drop on us pertaining to that question? So, I don't think you do. Um, The reason I think that is that even though there's quite a bit of overlap in the muscles trained in the two exercises, so, you know, both are going to challenge your hip extensor certainly both challenge your quads to some degree much more for the squat than for the deadlift and both challenge your back extensors to some degree probably more for the deadlift than for the squat um the the joint angles and the timings of the two movements are slightly different um so that's based on a paper by Hales from 2009 titled kinematic analysis of the powerlifting squat and conventional deadlift during competition, colon, are there crossover effects between the lifts? And so basically, if you're if you're trying to tune your body to be maximally good at a particular motor pattern, you, you know, you want the prime movers to be strong, but you also want to train the length tension relationships of those muscles in the direction of basically what you're trying to get them good at. And the point in the lift where or like the your, the hip joint angle in the squat where the squat is maximally hard is a little bit different than the hip joint angle in the deadlift say where the deadlift is maximally hard so a different length tension relationship for your hip extensors would probably lend itself more to one of the lifts versus the other length tension relationships of your muscles do also adapt with training so you know you're not going to be you know, making yourself bad at deadlifts and poorly tuned for deadlifts by also doing squats. But I do think that if anything, um, squats could be slightly counterproductive just on a muscle length tension relationship level. Um, And then just in terms of general training effects, so squats will obviously help you build a massive reserve of quad strength much more than you would probably need for deadlifts. But on a set-per-set basis, uh, squats probably aren't going to train your back and hip extensors as hard as deadlifts will. And so if, so if, if you imagine a scenario where, you know, you're going to do 10 squat, like 10 sets of squats and 10 sets of deadlifts per week, and you compare that to a scenario where you're just doing 10 sets of deadlifts per week, I think you probably get stronger by doing both the squats and the deadlifts. But if you compare that to a scenario where you're doing 20 sets of deadlifts per week instead of 
10 of those sets coming from squats. I think ultimately that's probably going to be better for building deadlift strength, just because the stimulus is more specific. Um, so that's those are my general thoughts. I do think that if you wanted to squat to help uh, further your aims in the deadlift, if anything, I think probably front squat might be a better option than back squat, just because front squat trains your upper back so hard. And that's not going to benefit everyone deadlifting because some people aren't going to be limited by their upper back strength. But if you're someone who, you know, your upper back rounds pretty quickly when you're deadlifting and it's not just an issue of your upper back rounding to get your hips a little bit closer to the bar, but your upper back is actually limiting you because, you know, maybe it's not strong enough for you to be able to get your shoulders back at lockout and you're failing at lockout. I think, uh, I think front squats can be really, really useful for that uh, situation. Do you think that only applies to people using the true front rack position? Because like I tend to front squat with the arms crossed with like the kind of cheater rack position. And I usually don't feel a whole bunch for my for my upper back there. That could be me. I don't know. (sighs) That's I I, I am a a bodybuilder who does a ton of direct upper back training just as a bodybuilder. So that could be part of it what rep ranges do you train front squat in and do you so another thing i've noticed is that when people train back squat they're typically pretty comfortable going pretty close to failure but when i see people train front squat in the gym most of the time unless they're weightlifters they're generally training at a massively lower rpe so do you do you feel like you push your front squats as close to failure as you do like back squats or leg press i push them but it usually skews toward the higher end of the hypertrophy kind of rep range like the traditional like yeah, yeah. it's usually up in the 10 12 15 range so okay. maybe i'm not pushing the load enough yeah you should just try like heavy triples until you get tired at some <laughs> point um and i mean it could just be that your upper back is strong enough that 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 your legs are going to limit you much before yeah, your upper my, back will. Either my upper back is strong enough or my front squat is bad enough yeah. in terms of load. Well, I mean, an- another thing as well is that I find that people who use the crossed arm position tend to stay more upright when they front squat because you kind of have to. Yeah. Um, like a front a front rack position, if it's a good front rack position, is going to be a little more stable and allow for maybe like a little additional forward lean compared to a crossed arm position. So like maybe that's the variable. And with with that with that uh, arm cross kind of position, you can still keep the scapula packed back a little bit. Yeah. Versus you, you need a lot of protraction for the front rack. Right. I think a lot of people do. Oh yeah, for sure. So this is actually a good front squat tip that doesn't relate to the question being asked. Um, so most of the powerlifters I've talked to who've tried front squats say, like, this is super uncomfortable, like, I just can't do this. Or if they, you know, get to where they can do front squats, it's mostly with the crossed arm position, like they have a garbage front rack. And I think a lot of people flatter themselves and say, like, mm, well, just too muscular. Like, <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly use a front rack position because my arms are too big, like, my lats are super fucking jacked, which makes them tight. Don't flatter yourself, man. Like, Hossein Razazadeh had a perfectly adequate front rack position, and he's way more muscular than you are and will ever be. 
Um, so the key for a good front rack position, which which Eric alluded to, and which I think makes it difficult for powerlifters, is it's all about scapular protraction. Um, everything we do, we learn pull your shoulders back. So that's how you set up for bench press. That's how you would set your upper back for back squats. With front squats, on the other hand, you want to protract your scapula as much as possible. That gets your shoulders further in front of your neck, and it gives you a little space for the bar to rest in between your front delts and your throat so you're not choking yourself out while you're trying to front squat. Um, So yeah, just getting comfortable with protracting your scapula gives you a lot more room to work with when it comes to setting a front rack position. And once people learn that like, oh, what I'm trying to do is the opposite of what I do for every other lift. Um, they're generally at least closer to a decent front rack position at that point. Yeah, I remember one night uh, we were hanging out with uh, Greg Schultz, the the dietitian at Stronger by Science on our coaching staff. And he was talking about, he's like, dude, I cannot front rack. And we went out to the garage and kind of worked on it. And in like 10 minutes, his front rack position looked probably 90% better yeah. just from that, just from that scapular thing. And I kind of messed around with it in the gym after and, and found a huge improvement. So yeah, like p- people just don't know that really good tip there. Yeah. Now I cut you off. You were, you were talking about how the front squat might be actually a little bit more useful yeah, compared to the back squat. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I wasn't quite done answering the actual question yet. So yeah, sure. o- overall, um, I think, I mean, obviously, if you're a power lifter, you should train both squat and deadlift unless you're just a push-pull lifter. But if you're trying to just, you know, reach your full deadlift potential, I don't think squats are all that useful. Um, and if anything, they could be taking away from volume that you would other in just general recovery capacity that you could otherwise, like, quote-unquote, spend on deadlifting. Um, so yeah, when, when I made, when I made the best deadlift progress of my life, um, just tossing an anecdote in here, it was when I wasn't really training, training the squat. So like I was still squatting, but it was, um, it was when I was getting used to using wraps. And so like, I wasn't really doing a ton of training in wraps. It was more just a matter of getting used to doing singles with wraps because, you know, that's what I was going to do on the platform. And also just getting my body used to to the heavier loading because, you know, you squat more with wraps than without. So my squat training was just like once a week, I would work up to a heavy set of between one and five reps with wraps. And like, that was my squat training. Um, And most of the time, like through most of my training career, I've trained the deadlift once per week, maybe, um, just because I've generally squatted a lot. And so I had a lot of difficulty recovering from more deadlifting than that. But during that period, I wasn't squatting a ton. Um, and so I had just more time and recovery capacity to train the deadlift much harder. Um, I was probably deadlifting three or four times per week doing different variations and, so just as a general timeline of my deadlift gains over time, um, when I started lifting and just generally applying myself to resistance training, my deadlift got to right around 600 pretty quickly. Um, I mean, I would say within 
nine months or so of actually getting into deadlifting. And then it kind of stayed there for years. <laughs> um, part of that was, was due to a back injury that made training the deadlift difficult. But I was stalled right around 600 for probably like six years. And then uh, ironically, and running counter to my answer for this question, when I did Bulgarian style, high intensity, high frequency training, squatting all the time, but barely training the deadlift, that did actually get my deadlift moving again. Um, that took me from, I think, 615, like 605, 615 to 645. Um, so like that was something like it at least got me unstuck. And then it was stalled at like 635, 645 for a while. And then during that period where I really wasn't training the squat all that much and mostly just getting comfortable with wraps and training the deadlift super hard, my deadlift went from 645 to 725 in like four or five months. Um, so that's where that's where like two thirds of the deadlift progress I've made in my my post newbie stage of lifting actually came from. Um, so that's just my anecdote there. But then also, I think we can look at, um, we can compare strongmen and powerlifters to kind of get an idea of just how little training the squat hard matters for, um, maximizing your deadlift. So like most, I think a lot of strongman fans do follow powerlifting a bit, but most powerlifting fans don't really follow strongman all that closely. Um, and the thing with strongmen is like most of them do squat a little bit, but they don't, for the most part, they don't focus super hard on squat training and certainly don't focus on it as hard as powerlifters do. But they train the deadlift really hard. And even when they're not training the deadlift, they're doing some sort of pull all the time. Uh, I mean, even like doing a pick for farmer's walks or like frame carry, that's like a super heavy partial deadlift. Stones is kind of like a deadlifty pattern. Um, so they're doing a bunch of pulling constantly. And if you compare the deadlifts of top strongmen and top powerlifters, for the most part, and I'm talking conventional deadlift here because strongmen don't do sumo, um, the powerlifters buy or the strongmen by and large eat the powerlifters' lunch. Um, there are <laughs> there are two powerlifters who have deadlifted a thousand one of whom is a strongman who just did a powerlifting meet. Uh, and then on the powerlifting, or then on the strongman side of things, there's, what, five or 6,000 pound deadlifters at this point. Um, Eddie Hall pulled 1,100. And I mean, you can say like, oh, well, he had straps to help him. Like, just give straps to a powerlifter. See if they pull 1,100, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean they train the deadlift really hard. They don't train the squat all that hard. And by and large, the top strongmen outpull the top powerlifters. So I think that's, again, just kind of circumstantial evidence and training the squat hard, not really being all that important for, for maximizing deadlift strength. So yeah, I mean, if I'm answering this in the context of a powerlifter, like Dude, neglecting your squat probably isn't worth it to put a few more pounds on your deadlift. And ultimately, I think it probably doesn't make a huge difference. Like, you know, if you train the squat and deadlift hard, maybe your deadlift gets to 600. And maybe if you super prioritize the deadlift and don't train the squat super hard, maybe it gets to 640, 650. So I don't think it's a night and day difference. But I, I, I don't think you need to train the squat hard to maximize deadlift strength. And if anything, it may be slightly counterproductive. 
All right. Next question here is for Eric uh, from PVP Martins. Question. Is keto better to lose weight? Uh, I assume that's asking better than non-keto. Um, so do you have uh, a suspicious envelope filled with knowledge anthrax to deliver to our listeners right now? I believe I do. Um so I already regret answering this question because <laughs> on the internet, there's only one way to answer this without getting destroyed. And that is to say unequivocally, yes, keto is better. Carbohydrates are non-essential in the human diet. Fun fact. So just don't eat them. That's well, I mean, if you answer it that way, a lot of other people will destroy you. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, but people that are less scary, I think. Yeah, that's fair. But anyway, yeah. So keto obviously has a very vocal, um, very enthusiastic group of people that like it and support it. And I genuinely am okay with that. Like, uh, I, I don't view myself as like a keto hater. In fact, I actually did keto strict for like probably seven months of my life continuously. Um, so... I'm going to answer part based on research and part on anecdote. And obviously the research should matter more if you're keeping score as a listener. So on the research side, what do we know about keto? Um, before I get there, the question when we talk about for weight loss is, do you actually care about weight loss or do, are you talking about fat loss? Mm -hmm. So if, if this is like a quick, you know, one or two week, I need to cut some water weight, make a weigh in, and then I'm good. Keto is a pretty suitable thing to do for that, but you probably don't need to put a ton of fat into the diet. You'd probably do pretty severe carb restriction, but you'd also keep your fat relatively low. You'd do more of like a protein sparing modified fast if you were doing that. But would you be making ketones in the process? You bet. But usually when people talk keto, they're talking about a long-term kind of thing, long enough that you would actually adapt to keto. And, you know, that's a thing that happens. You do, to some extent, adapt to whatever the hell you're putting in your body. So if you go to a low-fat, really high-carb diet, the enzymes associated with macronutrient metabolism, they will change. And same thing if you go the other direction. If you restrict carbohydrate and eat a bunch of fat, your, your metabolic enzymatic machinery will change to accommodate that. So what I was getting to with the research on keto, what do we know about it? Well... Keto certainly seems to be good when it comes to reducing appetite during weight loss. Um, if we put people on energy-restricted diets, keto actually does, uh, in the research, have a documented effect on helping people manage appetite more effectively, which is awesome. That's a pretty cool thing. Along the same lines, what you'll notice if you do keto is that your kind of subjective energy level throughout the day does seem quite stable. Um, because you, you don't have bi such big excursions when it comes to like glucose and insulin responses to meal, generally speaking. Um, keto is certainly good for some uh, seizure disorders. And if, if that's ever seemed puzzling to you, uh, the reason is some of these very specific seizure disorders are caused by inborn uh, genetic errors when it comes to carbohydrate metabolism in the brain. And so if you go on a keto diet, your brain has basically two options, get better at using non-carbohydrate fuels or die. And so it, it prefers the former to the latter. 
And your brain does adapt pretty well to using ketones as a fuel source. And so if you're a person who has an inborn uh, error in carbohydrate metabolism, then the keto diet is like, it's like a freaking miracle for these people. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 how rapidly and effectively it reduces those seizures is phenomenal. Um, now let's get to the more inflammatory uh, parts of the answer. Keto is not great for high intensity performance. It just isn't. And there are plenty of studies showing this. Um, and every time it, another study comes out showing it, people say, no, you had to, you had to really adapt them. And if it was a 12 week study, they'll say it takes 16 weeks. If it was a 16 week study, they'll say it takes 20. It just never seems to be enough ever. Can, can I just jump in here and complain a little bit? Yes. So the whole the whole like keto for anything other than performance that's not so most most aerobic or anaerobic performance is going to be limited by oxygen uptake or ox, oxygen utilization to some degree or another and just simply like the the idea behind keto for performance is there is quite a bit of research showing that when people do keto at any given relative level of exercise intensity, they're able to use more fat as fuel versus carbohydrate. And so there's maybe potentially an argument to be made for like ultra endurance performance where, you know, you have a you have a limited amount of uh, stored glycogen, but you have virtually an unlimited amount of stored fat that you could use for fuel, you know. And, and you're not running particularly close to lactate threshold or VO2 max. You're nowhere close to VO2 max when you're doing an ultra endurance race. It's like, yeah, maybe there's something there. But for anything remotely shorter than that, you're largely limited by oxygen utilization. And you get more ATP per molecule of oxygen used uh, when you're oxidizing carbohydrate versus fat. So if you are being super reliant on fat and you don't have much carbohydrate in your diet, you're not fueling with carbohydrate during exercise, uh, you don't have as much stored glycogen, that's going to limit performance because ultimately it's just a matter of how much energy can you produce per unit of oxygen your body is utilizing and it produces more ATP when oxidizing carbohydrate rather than oxidizing fat. And that's very, very basic physiology. Like, that's something that you would learn in an X-Phys 101 class. And, I mean, people researching this, I'm sure, know that. But people chattering about this on the internet don't know that. Like, I've dropped that nugget into discussions on keto per- for performance multiple times. And it's just like, that's a fact that blows people's minds. And it's like, dude, if you just read a basic X-Phys text... Once in your life, you would know that. That's really like day one stuff. Yeah, and sometimes you'll get people who say, that's fine, I get that, but here's here's where you you do it, is you become fat adapted, and then the day of the race, then you have carbs. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it's like, dude, you've just like completely destroyed your ability to actually efficiently utilize carbohydrate when it comes to high-intensity exercise. And that's something that there's, there's been a long line of research showing different strategies like uh, Burke mm-hmm. down in Australia did a series of studies trying to figure out, I believe it, okay, let's try to adapt people, get them fat adapted, and then with or without carbohydrate replacement before the event, mm-hmm. let's try to see if we can tap into this and utilize it. 
And there's a whole body of completely failed research <laughs> trying to utilize this. Yeah. And they eventually just said, screw it. We can't find a scenario in which this is better than normal. And, and so the ironic thing is the thing that does maybe work a little better than normal is taking a much less extreme approach. Um, there was a study Holly and Burke did maybe two or three years ago um, using what was called a sleep low approach, mm-hmm. where basically instead of feeding people carbohydrate all day and before and after every workout, they had people training twice a day. They were doing, if memory serves, a high-intensity training session in the evening and then like a moderate to low intensity longer duration session in the morning and uh after the morning low intensity like low to moderate intensity session they would eat carbohydrate throughout the day up to their moderate or up to their high intensity session in the evening then they do their high intensity session in the evening that would you know burn a, a lot of carbohydrate burn through a lot of glycogen and then they wouldn't uh, eat carbohydrate and glycogen replenish after the evening session, and then they would do the next morning session a little more glycogen depleted, a little less reliant on carbohydrate, with a low enough intensity that it wouldn't be the sort of exercise that would be limited by low carbohydrate availability. And there's research showing that when you do aerobic training with low carbohydrate availability and low glycogen, you you do actually get maybe better aerobic adaptations, even though actual performance may be compromised a little bit. Um, so, so you're getting the, the benefits of doing really high quality, high intensity stuff with plenty of carbohydrate in your system, then with maybe some signaling and adaptive benefits of doing the low intensity stuff with less carbohydrate to improve fat oxidation. So that actually seems to work pretty well. Um, and it's much, much less extreme than going full keto. And yeah, so that, that's something that's been shown from multiple different unrelated lab groups as well. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a small body of literature. Some people call it train low. I guess they use the the like sleep low terminology. Mm-hmm. But the idea of training during low glycogen storage levels um, with low intensity training in a program that also includes... Uh, intentionally having your high intensity work taking place during times when you have refed glycogen Mm -hmm. or refilled your glycogen storage. That is an effective strategy if that relates to what you're doing. But like if you're general fitness, if you're training for body comp, if you're a lifter, (laughs) you get nothing out of it. So just to be clear, to this point, we've we've been talking about endurance athletes. Yeah, this is like, if you fit within this narrow window of particular types of endurance activity, like there are some benefits of this train low approach with glycogen. You could argue that for ultra, ultra endurance events, maybe keto could make sense to you. Yeah. Um, And, And I mean, maybe if you're just super general fitness and you know you're trying to get a little bigger but also get in better shape you know maybe lift in the evening don't eat carbohydrate after your training session and then do some cardio in the morning before you eat carbs like maybe you can get some of those benefits there but if you're someone who i would assume like most stronger by science fans are mostly interested in pure strength or physique outcomes i don't see it doing too much for you no, probably not. So so with keto, um, it's not great for, for really high-intensity performance. Um, you could make arguments that for low rep range stuff, like 
you could maybe try to fight the battle that over time, once you're adapted, it's almost as good as normal. Like that's something that comes up a lot with these different things that you could adapt to over time is the question is, are you adapting to something that's better than the standard or the default? Or are you telling me that your performance is going to suck for a while? And then once you adapt to it, you'll be back to normal because that's not a good trade-off to me. Yeah. Yeah. And leaning on the anecdote side of things, um, like I did try keto for a good six or seven months and some of it was cool. Like, uh, my appetite was under great control. Um, general subjective energy level was quite level, which is really nice. Um, but my training in the gym, cause I tend to train up in the eight, 10, 12 rep range for a lot of my sets. It was garbage. And I was like, ah, but I've heard that you adapt to this. I didn't like, <laughs> I'm open to the idea that it's possible. And I know you guys save the comments. I know you did it wrong. Like fine. But if we have to, like, any, anytime there's a study on this, it's always like, no, it wasn't the right population. It wasn't the right adaptation period. It's the wrong performance test. If we have to work this hard to find a benefit, it can't be that big of a benefit. At some point, it should start revealing itself in the literature to some extent. Now, I, I will say there there was a study uh, from Volux Group. The, the lead author, I think it was Volux Group. The lead author was McSwiney or McSwinney. I don't mm-hmm. know how they pronounce it. But people got really worked up because they said, check out the the performance improvement. And what happened was the performance outcome, I think I think it was a cycling test. But the numerator was like the wattage, like the power output. Mm-hmm. And then the denominator was body weight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what happened was they just lost some weight and didn't completely tank their performance. And so that was chalked up as a performance improvement because it was greater power output scaled to their new reduced body weight. Yeah. And so like a lot of people were like, see it improved performance. And then a lot of people were furious because they're like, no, it just means that they don't have any glycogen, but they managed to get it together for 30 (laughs) seconds on this test and didn't completely tank. Mm -hmm. Um, But in any case, so keto, is it better for weight loss? Um, It's a loaded question. It's not better for performance and training is going to probably be part of your body composition goals. Um, Will you lose some water weight pretty quickly that will stay off? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you probably will. And can keto help with managing your energy level and your appetite? It definitely can. Now, any kind of diet that excludes a macronutrient or several food groups... um, and like keto, you're pretty much cutting out food groups. Like when your carbs are that low, anytime you do that, you have to be really mindful of making sure you're getting all the micronutrients that you need. And, you know, depending on how you structure your keto diet, there often are some big gaps that need to get filled usually via supplementation. Um, so I think that's as agnostic an answer as you can give. Like it, it's not great for performance. There are some benefits when it comes to weight loss. You could do just as well with a non-keto weight loss diet and probably perform better. Um, If you go the keto route, you'll probably enjoy better appetite regulation, maybe, depending on exactly what we're comparing it to. Um, But you'll have to be mindful that there might be some supplementation you need to do, which generally speaking, Greg, if if we're evaluating a diet 
and you say, yeah, it's doable, but there are some big gaps that you got to look for. That's usually not indicative of like the end all be all perfect diet. I agree. All right. So, uh, hate mail goes to Greg's email address. We'll put that in the show notes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All right, let's move on before we get into more trouble. Okay. So this next question is from John. There's no way that's a username. Uh, if memory serves, this was a website comment. Okay. It was was a, it was a comment on the last Q and A video we did. I was going to say this question is from John. Who's the third Instagram user that signed up. If he got, (laughs) if he got John. Um, okay. So the question is what exercises would you base a routine around for non power lifters? So, Greg, would you be so kind as to firebomb us with some knowledge pertaining to exercises for non-powerlifters? Yeah, so I think I think squat, bench, and deadlift are are fine exercises, and I think it does make sense in general to kind of build exercises around that for most people most of the time. Just because if you're putting a program out into the world and you have the consideration of well, what equipment are people likely to have access to? If they have a gym membership, they probably have access to barbells. So, you know, squat bench and deadlift are, are fine exercises to build a program around. However, if if I were to build the ideal general routine for non-power lifters, um, assuming they had access to the equipment that they wanted or that they had the budget that they could buy it for a home gym... I don't know that I would go with any of the classic powerlifting exercises, not because they're bad exercises, but just because I think that there are better tools that could be used. So starting with the squat, I would probably replace it with the safety bar squat, or if someone didn't want to buy a safety bar, probably with the front squat. Um, I think I think front squats in general are good Um because I think that over time, they probably have a slightly lower injury risk than back squats do. Um, because, you know, if if your form starts breaking down, you dump the bar. Uh, with squats, you can really, really grind and j- let your form degrade pretty considerably before you actually miss a rep. And I mean, you know, the response to that is, wow, people should just learn to lift with good form. But, you know, when people are, are really pushing themselves... Sometimes shit happens, you know? Um, so I think front squats have a built-in safety mechanism where when you are when you start losing position, you just lose the bar and the set's over. Um, safety bar squats, I think, are somewhat similar. Um, they, they don't have the same built-in spotting mechanism, but very much more so since they position the weight a little bit further in front you generally can't get away with as much form breakdown. So I find that they tend to ingrain good form a little bit better um, than back squats do for most people. Um, They also let people stay a little bit more upright when they squat, which, you know, your mileage may vary, but um, I find that, especially for learning the exercise, a lot of people don't want to just don't feel comfortable with like a super hip dominant type squat. Um, And so especially for learning the exercise, I think safety bar squats are great. And then if you're, you know, 
a banged up old power lifter and or maybe you're just you want to flatter yourself by thinking you're super jacked and don't have the mobility or and don't want to develop the mobility to back squat safety bar squats are good because you don't need any significant shoulder and upper body mobility to actually you know use the implement and get your hands behind the bar um so yeah i'd I'd probably replace the back squat with either a safety bar squat or a front squat um i think i think weighted push-ups or like resisted push-ups are generally a better option than bench press so bench is fine and obviously people will eventually reach the point where they're too strong for resisted push-ups to really do much for them um and then at that point switch over to bench press it's a perfectly fine exercise but i think for new lifters you know if you can't do 10 or 15 solid body weight push-ups i think you should just do push-ups before you mess around with the bench press and once you can do 10 or 15 pretty solid body weight push-ups i think in general, the best thing to move on to from there is like band resisted push-ups. Um, so push-up and bench press, same basic movement pattern. The only difference is your scapulae aren't pinned to the bench when you're doing push-ups. So it's kind of more of a quote-unquote natural movement. Your shoulders have their natural free range of motion. It's going to help strengthen your serratus anterior as it's also strengthening your pecs, triceps, front delts. Um, and then, I mean, it's obviously, you don't you don't need a spotter to perform weighted push-ups. Um, whereas, if you're doing bench relatively close to failure, not a bad idea to have a spotter. So, it makes it a, a little bit more versatile of an exercise for different circumstances or training at gyms where you don't necessarily trust someone to spot you. Um, so, yeah, one, once you can do several good push-ups with a really heavy band and band-resisted push-ups aren't doing much for you anymore... Bench press is fine, but I think most people can probably get the same like hypertrophic and general strength benefits from band-resisted push-ups um, while maybe also being a little bit more shoulder-friendly because your scapula aren't pinned. Um, for deadlift, I think I would probably substitute that as well with something else, with the something else kind of depending on the lifter and what they have access to. So it's no secret, I'm a big fan of trap bar deadlifts um, for a few different reasons. One of them is just that similar to the front squat and having that safety valve if form starts breaking down, when you see people's form start breaking down with a barbell deadlift, it generally goes in the the direction of just a bunch of spinal flexion. Um, Whereas with a trap bar deadlift... Sometimes it goes that way, but oftentimes what people do is they move from more of a, you know, hip dominant hinge type pattern to like a more upright knees forward squatty type pattern. So it's like, oh man, you started fatiguing. What's the worst thing that can happen? You train your quads a little harder? Terrible. Um, So (laughs) I think trap bars are, are good from that perspective. Also, since you have more just freedom of movement uh, and you don't have to worry about scraping the bar up your shins, it helps people get in just a more generally natural position to pull weight. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, powerlifters need to do barbell deadlifts. I think trap bar for a general population is a superior alternative. Um, 
And, and one one thing that people will often say in response to that is, oh, well, I mean, trap bar deadlift is basically a squat. But the thing is, it doesn't have to be. You can use whatever technique you want with a trap bar deadlift. You can do it super hip dominant the same way you would a barbell deadlift. It's just it doesn't have to be. So it's just a more flexible implement. Um, if someone doesn't want to buy a trap bar, I think RDLs are great. Um, and especially if someone has more physique focus goals, I think you're probably going to get more hamstrings hypertrophy from RDLs than you will um, just normal conventional deadlifts. The range of motion for the hamstring specifically is going to be longer, even if the range of motion for the bar isn't quite as long. Um, so I think it's probably going to be a better hypertrophy movement for your hamstrings. Um, maybe a little more comfortable for most people because there is an even higher premium placed on staying in spinal extension. Uh, and also loading is going to be a little bit lower. So it has those benefits as well. And if someone just really wants to use a barbell for just straight up deadlifts, not for everyone, but I think for a non-negligible amount of people, low block pulls are really good. So one fact about the deadlift is on average, people need to get into approximately 110 to 120 degrees of hip flexion uh, at the start of a deadlift, either conventional or sumo. And the typical passive range of bent knee hip flexion most people have uh, on average is about 120 degrees. So deadlifts are putting you relatively close to end range of motion for hip flexion, uh, and that's passive hip flexion. And generally, when you introduce a little bit of tension into the system, maximal range of motion decreases a little bit. So there are a non-negligible number of people who almost like have to deadlift with a pretty fair amount of spinal flexion. Um, and so I think low block pulls can be really good for those folks. And I'm not trying to scaremonger here. Like a, a lot of people, and I would venture to say most people can deadlift from the floor just fine. But I think there's a non-negligible amount of people for whom a low block pull is just a better exercise. For them, it is full range of motion. Like th that's something to keep in mind. Deadlift with the barbell starting on the floor is an arbitrary range of motion. Um, it, like if you conceive of range of motion as like percentage of full joint range of motion for an individual, you know, for someone who's built perfectly ideally for deadlifts, uh, deadlift from the floor is probably a slightly partial range of motion exercise for them. You know, they could do deficit deadlifts very comfortably, just fine. Um, and then for some people, deadlift from the floor is probably a, a slightly more than full range of motion, or at least a slightly longer range of motion than they should be working through. Um, so yeah, low block pulls are great for some folks. And then, so, you know, if someone was still just into straight powerlifting stuff, that's what I would typically replace squat bench deadlift with for most people. But if you're trying to round out a full program for non-powerlifters, I think push press is great. Um, I think it's generally more of an athletic movement than just strict shoulder press. And it also gets around the really weird wonky range of motion that you have with strict shoulder press where you have that huge dead zone like right at forehead height. Um, so I'm kind of a fan of like a weak push press 
where you're not getting everything possible out of leg drive, but you're getting a little leg drive each rep to get you through that big dead zone and then muscling it up the rest of the way. I think that's a really good exercise. Um, Pull-ups are obviously fantastic. For most folks, I think ring pull-ups or neutral grip pull-ups tend to be a little bit better than either pronated or supinated. Um, I know not every gym has a setup to allow you to do that, but if you can do neutral grip or ring pull-ups, they tend to be more comfortable for most people. Um, and then I also really, really like cheaty barbell rows. So similar to, uh, the push press, not like full on as much cheating and assistance from like using your hips as possible, but barbell rows with a little bit of cheating. I find that most people feel those in their back a little bit better than super, super strict barbell rows. I think the reason for that is your lats so your the the moment arm that your lats have at your shoulder to produce uh shoulder extension is at its longest when you're at like 90 degrees of shoulder flexion so like arm straight out in front of you like you're a mummy that's around the position where your lats are the strongest for creating shoulder extension and then they're at their weakest when your shoulders are in uh, like anatomical position. So arms down at your sides. And so, you know, at the, I guess you can't call it lockout, but at the top position of a row, when your upper arms are either in line with your torso or like you're in slight shoulder hyperextension with your elbows behind the, the line of your torso, your lats are super weak in that position. Um, and so I think, using a little bit of cheating to give you some momentum to help finish each rep um, makes rows a little bit better. So yeah, front squat or front squat or safety bar squat, uh, resisted push-ups, trap bar deadlift, RDL or low block pull, push press, uh, ring or neutral grip pull-ups, and slightly cheaty barbell rows. Those would probably be the exercises that I'd base just a general non-powerlifting strength routine around. Yeah, you mentioned those ring pull-ups when we were talking with Brandon Roberts, I think. Yeah. And I tried those a couple days later. They're pretty solid. Yeah. I didn't realize my gym had them. We do. It's good stuff, man. But if you're listening and you think push press is stupid, again, I reiterate, the single arm overhead dumbbell press, uh, I live and die by it. So... Yeah, I mean, both, that's, that's also really good. I think both of those are really good substitutes for like the standard strict military press, which is very popular, but I think there's better stuff out there. I agree. Um, oh, man, this is this is going to be my turn to really butcher a name. So we have a question from Nico Skanto Georges. Going to go. I know that's wrong, but that's what we're going with that's gotta be that's greek right probably we need we need to like hire someone from greece because we get a lot of we get a lot of names from that region that we just butcher yeah oh well uh so the question is um what are the repercussions of rapid fat loss and how can you execute rapid fat loss to minimize those negative repercussions uh so i would say Listeners, at this point, take cover because there is going to be extensive knowledge shrapnel from the knowledge mine that Nico just stepped on here. Yeah, so 
rapid fat loss is tough because it it sounds nice, but from an evolutionary perspective, it is a disaster. So, like, uh, if you watched uh, Chernobyl on HBO, which I highly recommend, I know purists are upset that they took some very creative liberties and made nuclear power look very scary. So I get that. I know it's not uh, it's not that bad. But spoiler alert: Chernobyl. There was a meltdown. If you haven't heard, that's it's like forty years ago. So I feel like that's a fair spoiler. You're allowed to give it, <laughs> give away the end. So throughout the process, they're trying all these different um, all these different ways to like solve the issues and just kind of cool things off before they have to use like the the absolute like there's like the one button where it's like shatter the glass and use this emergency button. When you start going like really crazy with the very rapid drastic fat loss, your body views that as the time to just like go ahead and hit that emergency button. So that's why you get so many recommendations to like try to take a more gradual approach um, because any huge acute deficit of energy, any like really major uh, drop in acute energy availability your body's not going to respond respond very kindly to that because that's like its main priority is making sure that doesn't happen. So, um, there, there. I, before I get into the downsides and and how to mitigate them, I will mention that there are some positives when it comes to taking a quicker approach to fat loss. And so, if you just like dive in head first to a fat loss goal, that is. You can view it as like a discrete period of very focused effort, which some people I think mentally uh, can embrace a lot better. Like if you tell somebody like, hey, we're going to slowly make behavior changes that aren't going to cause results for a while. And uh, this is just how you live from now on for forever. I think a lot of people psychologically get freaked out by that by that approach. So sometimes rapid fat loss to kick off a fat loss program is actually advisable because it's short-term results that are very, very easy to see. So so there are some benefits to taking that approach. However, um, when if adherence is not a factor, generally speaking, you would prefer to take a more gradual approach, generally speaking. Um the only time that you wouldn't would be if there's so if there's a lot of adipose tissue to lose and you just need to get somebody into a healthy weight range like now, like as soon as possible. But anyway, so what are the downsides of a rapid approach to fat loss? Um, being in an energy deficit, especially as you start getting leaner, um, you know, anytime that you have low energy availability, there are going to be some hormonal re- repercussions of that. So we often see reduced sex hormones, estrogen testosterone we often see thyroid hormones go down and we see cortisol go up usually because a lot of times when we have this huge uh, lack of energy availability we also tend to see that there's a ton of training going on alongside that people like to usually hit that from both angles Um, so generally speaking that is the hormonal milieu that we that we (laughs) observe with rapid fat loss that's a callback to a previous episode um so the hormonal changes often are exacerbated when we try to push the tempo more rapidly with fat loss. 
Um, there's also a greater possibility of losing lean mass, which generally speaking opposes the goal of most people when they're doing some kind of fat loss diet. Usually the goal is to maintain as much muscle and lean mass as you possibly can. So the more you get greedy with the rate of fat loss, not only do you exacerbate the unfavorable hormone changes, but also you have the potential to increase the loss of lean tissues. Uh, certainly performance decrements can follow suit. Um, and, and these things are all related. So when, when the hormonal milieu gets exacerbated in a negative way and we start to lose lean tissue, performance off, often drops off alongside these things. Um, and so uh, probably the, the best singular representation of that was uh, a paper by Garth et al. in 2011 where they took uh, really well-trained people and tr tested out two different rates of weight loss. And what they saw was the slower rate of weight loss was generally advisable when it came to maintaining lean mass and maintaining performance on the outcomes that they tested. Um, and so kind of a downstream effect of all these downsides would be that we see typically exacerbated hunger, exacerbated fatigue, and potentially a greater drop off in energy expenditure because of that really large acute energy deficit. So generally speaking, um, it would be advisable if you have the patience and the adherence is guaranteed, it would be more advisable to take a slower approach. Um, but like I said, sometimes people, if you, if you have them losing half a pound a week, they're going to view that as I'm not losing weight and they're going to just check out. And so that, that, that's an instance where you would say, Despite what we know about rate of weight loss, we should probably ramp this up just to keep them motivated and interested. Um, now, there, there was also a paper that came out August 22nd. Now, we're recording this on August 24th. So this is not just the most entertaining couple hours of your week, but this is cutting edge, hot off the presses research, evidence-based. Um But yeah, Andrew Trappel and colleagues uh, a couple days ago posted a, a paper looking at pro and amateur bodybuilders and what they tended to find was that the pros who you know this is observational so you take it with a grain of salt but the pros generally tend to diet at a slower rate of weight loss and they generally do tend to achieve uh, a better physique as the end product um, but generally speaking when you look at the body li bodybuilding literature as a whole you do see that some of the case studies where the rate of weight loss is more rapid there is uh, a more glaring reduction in lean mass as well now if you were going to do the rapid fat loss approach and, and there's reasons to do that sometimes we're on a deadline and sometimes we just don't feel like waiting and that's okay if you're going to do that obviously you want to retain as much lean mass as you realistically can. So you want to make sure you have sufficient protein. Now, generally speaking, people would put that in normal circumstances at like roughly a gram per pound, right? A gram per pound of body, body weight. Um, you might go higher than that in, in this circumstance. So you might even, even though that's kind of toward the higher end, if, if you want to take like a really rapid approach, you want to drop the carbs and the fat pretty low. And I think there it would make some sense if you can get away with it to have the protein even a little bit higher than that. So maybe bump it up, you know, just a little bit, 1.2 grams per pound, maybe. Um, and that that's not advice because you're not supposed to make recommendations that are higher than the RDA. So, you know, call a doctor, call a dietitian, get... Uh, I don't know, get the government involved, whatever you want to do. Don't take my advice. 
but make sure you call a dietitian that lifts. Make sure, yeah, make sure you call a dietitian that lifts. Um, but Ideal, in any case, ideally, Greg Schultz. Yeah, at Greg StrongerbyScience.com. StrongerbyScience.com, the official team dietitian who does lift and is a very good strongman. Uh, but yeah, so generally speaking, you want to go high protein approach. You want to drop the fat and the carbs uh, pretty aggressively. You basically take the approach of like, we mentioned this term already, a protein sparing modified fast. So uh, most of your calories basically are coming from protein and that's aimed at uh, maintaining as much muscle as you can. Uh, you want to get, you probably want to take a multivitamin. You want to get enough fat to stay alive. Uh, I usually don't recommend that people go below like 0.6 grams per kilogram of fat. I know some people recommend 0.5. I think 0.6 is more comfortable for me. Looking at you, Helms, 0.5, that's reckless and it's irresponsible. <laughs> Shame on you, Helms. Um, it's sick what he's doing out there. And uh, yeah, carbs are basically as low as you can tolerate. You, sh you should still get enough vegetables in to get some fiber in your diet, in my opinion, just because you want to like stay alive and have a GI system that functions. But uh, yeah, if whatever carbs you can get away with, you'd probably want to put them peri-workout if, if you want to pretend you can still perform. Um, but that's about the best you can do. And I would recommend if you can get away with it, not going crazy with the cardio because that's just not a good way to live, man. When you're cutting the diet this hard, um, the cardio usually exacerbates a lot of those endocrine issues that we see. And then the whole thing just, it's just a miserable way to live. Yeah. Since you've mentioned protein sparing modified fast twice in this episode so far, would you mind if I just tell an amusing story that's you have not to. at all edifying? You, no, you know, you you know yeah. what I'm about you, to tell, you, right? The world needs this one. Okay. <laughs> so hot, fresh content that a lot of my friends have have heard, but uh, that I haven't put out in the world yet. So th this is this is actually pretty great. So back when I was in college, um, I'm not going to name any names, but there was this kid, there was this kid in my program who... Um, like pretty good student, but I think he mostly just made good grades because he studied a lot, but didn't strike me as maybe the smartest person who's ever lived. Um, and so in like February, I'm in the computer lab. He comes up to me. He's like, yo, Greg, check it. I was like, what? He's like, my girlfriend just dumped me. I was like, dude, that sucks. I'm so sorry. He's like, nah, dude, it's sick. I'm going to Miami for spring break. I was hoping I'd be single. Uh, you know, my girlfriend wasn't going to be able to come to Miami with me. Miami for spring break. You know what's going down. And I didn't want to have to be the bad guy and dump her because some of her friends are hot. I was like, all right. Uh, <laughs> where is this going? He's like, so check it. Got some weight I need to lose. Uh, and, and like this dude was already fairly lean. I, I'd say he was probably like 14 ish percent, but he wanted to be shredded. He's like, so got some weight to lose. Want to be shredded for spring break. You know, that's going to increase my odds. Uh, so like don't have much time. What should I do? And so I, I think there were like five or six weeks, not like not dealing with much time here. So I was like, man, honestly, your best bet would probably be a protein-sparing modified fast. That's going to be your only good bet to take off a pretty substantial amount of weight in, you know, just four or five, six weeks. So, 
you know, here's what you got to do. Like we're talking chicken breast, canned tuna, like other lean fish if you can afford it, protein shakes, egg whites, like, you know, that's your diet. Maybe, maybe some fibrous vegetables. And so I told him that, spelled out what foods can fit on a protein sparing modified fast, sent him some articles to read about it. He was like, all right, sick. I got this. And so then, <laughs> then he comes back like two or three weeks later. He's like, all right, dude, final push. Uh, you know, still ha- it's not going great. I, I think I may have lost a little weight, but like, you know, it's coming down to the final push. How can I get these last few pounds off? If if you were in my position, would you just go with protein shakes or would you just go with chicken? And I was like, man, it probably doesn't matter all that much. Like protein shakes may have a gram or two of carbs and chicken breasts may have like a gram or two of fat. But I mean, honestly, it doesn't matter all that much. Like just kind of stick with it. He was like, I don't know about that, man. Uh, checking the nutrition labels, protein shakes have quite a lot of carbs in them, and chicken has quite a lot of fat. Anyway, ask some more questions. Find out this motherfucker has been trying to do a protein-sparing modified fast (laughs) on a diet (laughs) of mass gainer shakes and bone-in skin-on chicken thighs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... And anyway, so, I mean, he only had like two weeks left at that point. He did actually just eat chicken breast for two weeks. I think he lost a little weight, but he didn't end up going to Miami shredded. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, he, he so thought he was doing a protein sparing modified fast on skin on chicken thighs and masquer shakes. <laughs> and, and every time I think about that story, like... I I could be like in public and that story pops in my head and I start like laughing out loud. That that is one of the the best experiences of my life to this point. And he's eating these ad libitum, so it was probably like a thirty four hundred <laughs> calorie diet, right? Yeah. I mean, no, I mean he, he was trying to get in like two hundred grams of protein per day. So so I mean I bet he was eating like four thousand plus calories a day. <laughs> But, oh, man. So anytime someone mentions protein-sparing modified fast, like, that's just what comes to mind, and it's great every single time. Oh, man, that that is awesome. I'm actually, I'm going to not do the other half of this in the interest of time. Okay. But I will leave the audience with a teaser. If you want the lowdown, the deep dive scoop on the pros and cons of slow-gaining weight versus more aggressive bulking, that'll be coming up on a future episode so tell your friends get them to subscribe like review all that stuff oh hell yeah hell yeah okay the next question is for greg (laughs) the the username is because of the implication which i assume (laughs) is a reference to it's always sunny on philadelphia um i have to assume that's the case um the question is, do you still believe that planks increase hip mobility significantly? And I don't know if this would necessarily require a knowledge bomb, but maybe if you wanted to spray a, a liberal serving of knowledge DDT, that would be really disastrous for like the honeybee population. Sure. Yeah. So um, 
So this is actually a callback. Uh, so because of the implication has apparently been uh, stronger by science reader and follower since maybe like 2014 or so, which is pretty cool. So thanks, man. Um, but yeah, so I wrote an article a while back where I believe I had been having some hip issues. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, so it's all coming back. So I had some hip issues for a while. I was trying to switch over from conventional to sumo deadlifts. Sumo deadlifts, for this is a bit of a tangent. For me, sumo deadlifts feel really, really good to train. And for sub-maximal training, they're awesome. Whenever I try to max, it feels like my left hip is starting to dislocate. Uh, and then I just have like shooting pain down my left leg for several days. Um, so, uh, yeah, if people will occasionally see me post training videos of sumo deadlifts and basically like I can lift heavy with like good bar speed, super snappy, looks like I should be able to do a lot more sumo than conventional, but I can't because when I try to max, it feels like I'm about to dislocate my hip anyway. So when I was trying to switch to sumo and, and one of my hips was really fucked up, uh, I started like super relying on the other hip for virtually everything because uh, I was too dumb to actually take time off and, and get that other hip right. And so I started having issues with um, hip mobility and being able to get in something resembling a symmetrical bottom position in the squat. So I, I've always shifted my weight to the right a little bit when I squat, and I generally don't think that some degree of asymmetry is really all that problematic, but it was starting to get fairly extreme. And so one of the things that I found is that adding planks to my warm-up routine helped with hip mobility and, and being able to get into both a deeper bottom position in the squat and a slightly more symmetrical one. So both just straight-up hard-style planks and then also side planks on both sides. And so at that point, I didn't have any research to support it. Still don't have any research to support it. But I just kind of threw it out there to the world and said like, hey, here's something that's been helping me. And I still think they're generally useful. So I think, um, I think a lot of the kind of trendy warm-up modalities out there um, and specifically I'm thinking some of like the supple leopard stuff and a lot of the like PRI breathing stuff. I think a lot of it kind of focuses around getting your deep core muscles to activate and do something. And kind of the mental model that I work with is I think that one of your nervous system's main goals is to <laughs> protect the nervous system and not allow like great harm to come to your spinal column. And something I have found is that when you do something to kind of get your core muscles firing, so you're able to support your spine a little bit better, everything downstream of that tends to work a little bit smoother. Um, so here I'm thinking like, you know, hip mobility and like force output from your legs. There's, there's actually a growing body of research looking at uh, intra-abdominal pressure and how that affects like muscle activation in your legs and also like force output um, seems to be pretty good stuff. So yeah, I think that um, I don't think that that planks, you know, longitudinally increase hip mobility. Like 
They're not going to do anything to change the maximal fascicle length of your hamstrings. But I, I do think that for a lot of people, especially who have sedentary jobs and sit most of the day, I do think that just doing a couple quick sets of planks um, can be useful to add into your warm-up routine to help start getting your lower body a little bit more lubricated and, you know, just uh, get the range of motion that you should have that maybe your nervous system isn't allowing you possibly for the purpose of protecting your spine. Like, that, that, to be clear, is the mental model I work with. I don't know if that's how it actually works physiologically. Uh, but yeah, planks, and especially side planks, I, f- I find are really useful, both for me and um, a lot of the people I've recommended them to, or recommended to do them, have also said like, oh yeah, I work an office job, I sit all day, do some planks, squats feel better. So yeah, it's not going to be a night and day difference, but I think it's at least worth a shot for most people. All right. So we have a question from Warren M. Fitness. Um, Probably Warren Moon. I wish it was Warren G. No, Warren Moon, legendary quarterback. Huge fan. Thanks for listening, Warren. Yeah, but Warren G. was the chief of the regulators. Right, but it's not Warren G. Fitness. (laughs) I know. I said I wish it was. Okay, fair enough. God damn, Eric. Um, I'm a literal guy. I'm sorry. I don't like to joke around. Okay, uh, so question from Warren M. Fitness is, uh, what is the best way to track daily energy expenditure for optimal accuracy? Uh, so should you go with a Fitbit, etc.? cetera? Um, so, you know, this, uh, this I feel is a, is a question you're going to be able to share a lot of knowledge on both with uh, Warren M. Fitness and his entire city. So uh, would you like to dust Warren M.'s city with several kilos of knowledge botulinum toxin with the knowledge that only roughly 200 nanograms is necessary to be lethal if inhaled? It kind of makes knowledge bombs look really insignificant in comparison. Yeah. So that's a lot of pressure, but I'll do my best. Um, There was a... A review paper by Feehan et al. in 2018. So it came out more than two days ago, which by our standards is old news, but um, nobody published anything in the last week on this. So um, it looked at a bunch of different kind of commercially available fitness trackers and and how they did in terms of estimating um, energy expenditure. And frankly, they don't do that great of a job. So if you want, if you're looking for something that at the individual level, something that is affordable, commercially available, and will tell you day to day exactly how many calories you burned, um, they just don't do a good enough job of that to really feel super enthusiastic about the results. Um, They do a pretty good job with heart rate, but when it comes to energy expenditure, they they don't do as good a job as you'd like. Now they probably do good enough for making like group level um, estimations, but that's not really helpful to the consumer. Um, they probably give you a good idea of generally speaking, like are you remarkably sedentary or are you remarkably active? But I don't think that's the level of precision that a lot of people are looking for. And I don't think that's the level of precision that people are 
I, I don't think people are interpreting the number that way when they get it. So it's, it's not as sharp and precise a number as a lot of people are hoping or thinking. Um, another non-negligible factor is if this were me, and if, we're, if it were just about anybody that I associate with closely, looking at that number every day, even if it were perfect, would drive us insane. Like you, you, I would feel like I was just like a hamster on a wheel, just constantly trying to stay more and more active. And so another thing I would add as well is I don't know if Fitbit's algorithm has gotten better and like this, just the software it's working with. But I remember maybe like a couple years ago, like when the Fitbit craze was really hitting and everyone who was into fitness was starting to get a Fitbit. I would see pictures that people would post on Instagram and Facebook all the time where someone had like taken a a picture of a number on their Fitbit to show like, oh, look how many calories I burned in my workout. And it was like a resistance training workout and people would say they burned like 2,300 calories. No, you fucking didn't. Like not even close. So like in in their, their algorithms for resistance training specifically may have gotten better, but like ultimately it's it's looking at heart rate and it's trying to extrapolate energy expenditure from heart rate. Like that, that's the biggest thing it does. And the, the calorie expenditure per unit of heart rate elevation is maximized with aerobic training. So if you're like cycling or running and your heart rate is getting up to 180, 190, you're burning a bunch of calories. If you're resistance training and your heart rate's getting up to 180 190 and you know staying elevated between sets like you are still burning substantially more calories than you would at rest but you're not burning as many calories as you would have been were your heart rate that high when doing aerobic training so i think that uh at least fitbits used to pretty massively overestimate energy expenditure from resistance training and they may have gotten better but i I don't think there's really quite enough data relating heart rate to calorie expenditure in resistance training for me to feel confident that those algorithms are particularly good yet. Yeah, and I I think there are some devices on the market that are purely heart rate based, and I think there are some that do accelerometry. But um, Well, I I still don't think that would do that much for you because, for example, uh, if you do like a really hard set of leg press, that's going to burn... A significant number of calories like we're not talking like three four hundred calories but it's probably going to burn about as many calories as a similarly hard set of squats at least something comparable yeah. but the accelerometer would say you haven't moved you you're laying anything. here you know yeah i think i think those devices integrate both yeah um but again it brings up a good point of like i don't care how much of a math whiz you are without someone putting in the information like hey by the way i did some leg press like, I don't know how you could tweak those algorithms to perfectly deal with that. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, whether you're going with just heart rate or just accelerometry or both, it, it presents a very unique challenge of trying to use those inputs and figure out how much energy a person spent in a day. Yeah. I mean, it, it is an inherently challenging thing to do. Now, you mentioned the possibility that the algorithms could have gotten better since the last time you, you looked into it. They're probably tweaking that thing around the clock. Mm-hmm. and making it better year year over year. Um, but even to where it's at now, I, I don't feel like I don't feel like it would be as precise currently as you'd want it to be for individual I, use. 
I honestly don't know about that. I mean, I, I'm sure they are updating it and tweaking it and improving it, but I don't have that much faith just in their basic technology yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe like 18 months or two years ago or so, we had uh, Eddie Joe write an article for Mass about the reliability of, of one of these devices. I, I forget which one it was. Um, and I mean, so yeah, like that was a little while ago. I'm sure things have improved since then, but just the basic technology that they used to track heart rate, um, (laughs) wasn't good. So, so essentially it was really, really accurate for tracking heart rate at rest and during very low intensity exercise, but during high intensity exercise, it was pretty garbage at tracking heart rate, um, which you know, most of the time when someone's using a Fitbit, or at least often, they're interested in tracking how their exercise is going. So, like, one of the core parts of its functionality, when it was a product that had already been on the market for a few years, already didn't work, or, or like, still didn't work for one of the main things it was supposed to do, which was track heart rate during exercise. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, like, I'm sh- I'm sure it's better, but, like, it used to be kind of pretty bad. So better than bad probably still isn't great. Yeah. And I I don't think we disagree there. Um, I'm just nicer than you are. (laughs) Fair enough. So yeah, I I still, like I was saying, I I, I still don't think it's at a point and I don't, I wouldn't even forecast a time where I would say definitely go for it because it's going to be precise enough. Um, But I, I do think that certainly they're at least making changes so that the reason I bring it up is if you see something estimating its reliability in 2016, that's probably not where it's at now. That doesn't really speak to where the ceiling is necessarily, but mm-hmm. they're, they're probably improving it to some extent over time. But the question is, when when they start improving it to the point on the algorithm side that they're asymptotically approaching the ceiling of what they can do with that basic technology, mm-hmm. then that's where it's going to just you're just stuck with what you got. And I, I don't know where we're at on that curve. I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the the thing I'm skeptical of is just that it's reading your pulse from your wrist. Because, mm-hmm. like, those aren't, those aren't huge blood vessels. Um, and also, like, unless you have... So if you have the, the watch or the device cinched super tight, that could theoretically occlude blood flow, which isn't ideal. If you have it a little bit looser... Um, especially if you're like running or, or moving around vigorously, the device can move around. And so maybe the little green laser thing isn't staying perfectly over the blood vessels that you would want it to. And so I think like, I think that there's just inherent issues in the tech, like, like you were talking about, like it, it will eventually approach as good as the tech will allow it to be. Um, but I mean, I, I think there's a reason why in research, we still use the chest straps for monitoring heart rate. Like the, the wrist worn devices are, they're, they're not great. And I, I'm skeptical that they'll ever be super great. Yeah. Now, do you remember several decades ago, there was a a fashion trend where you would put on like only part of a turtleneck and it looked like you were wearing a turtleneck. No, it was a thing. It was like, if you want to make it look like you were wearing a turtleneck under your outfit, <laughs> but you don't want to wear a full turtleneck, here is this. Um, they should just get back to those and then do like a, a carotid for, for all of those measurements. Sure. I feel like that would be the better way to do it. 
get rid of the chest strap too. Go sure. There. Why not? All right. So basically, Greg and I both are pretty much at a consensus here. Whatever number you're getting out of that, whether you want to blame it on the tech or the algorithm or both, it's probably not as precise as what what you're going to be using it to make decisions about. Yeah. So yeah. so that that would be um, not ideal. So what I usually recommend to people to to put something pragmatic and actionable uh, onto this question would be. I tend to focus more on step counts as best you can estimate them because there's issues with that as well. <laughs> but I think we, I, I feel more comfortable estimating step count over an exact number of calories you burn throughout a day. There are still huge issues there. I'll acknowledge, but step count and more importantly, just behaviors. Like I, I think we're pretty good at intuitively knowing if we have become substantially more or less sedentary than we used to be. Um, it's a lot easier to say, you know what, in the morning I do a walk in the evening, I do a walk. Here's my route. And generally speaking, you're going to have your activity level pretty much standardized there. Mm -hmm. And if you need to increase it, you can increase it and you can do it based on the route that you walk. You can do it based on the time spent walking. Um, but you know, Helms and I wrote something years ago about, uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And I put in kind of a joking line about like, I mean, unless you're just going to be like a hamster on a wheel and just always be moving, you know, we're limited in terms of how much we can do about it. And he was like, I feel like people are going to take that literally. And so we we pulled it out because I made some joking recommendation of like, we'll just always move. And he's like, no, people are going to think you're serious. So I I don't stocks for treadmill desks go up (laughs) 2000%. Yeah. Based on your recommendation. He was right. Yeah. I mean, people have kind of gone that direction of like making these things of like, well, how could you just always be moving? Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's tricky because there's a give and take. You want to psychologically not drive yourself insane while making sure you still have some idea uh, of hitting adequate activity level throughout the day to keep your energy expenditure within a working reasonable range. But I think you can do that without going the tech route and opening yourself up to over interpreting numbers with a pretty sizable margin of error. I, I think you're probably better off psychologically and in terms of actually quantifying your activity level, sticking to some more basic things, time spent walking, distance spent walking, Maybe you can lean on your step count a little bit um, with whatever device you use for that. But I think that's about the best we can do for now. No, for sure. And and if I can give a practical recommendation for step counting, um, a lot of people use their phones. They're also somewhat prone to error. What I, would, what I would recommend is getting an ankle, an ankle-worn pedometer. Um, that's going to, one, be more accurate, and two... If you ever find yourself in a conversation you don't particularly want to be in, you can point to your ankle-worn pedometer and tell the person it's a device you wear to make sure you never get within 500 yards of a school. That's a good way to end that conversation, get you out of uncomfortable situations. Um, so, so that's less of a fitness tip and more of just a life tip. They also do make... Um, you probably remember this from your baseball days. They make little automated devices you can... <laughs> <laughs> they're, yeah. they're, they're manual devices you yeah. just click it and it, it you can count how many pitches somebody threw yeah you could just carry one of those and count your steps manually throughout the day and That's it would true. keep a running total you just want to make sure it has at least five digits you want to get up at least into the ten thousands or at least have the ability to count that high <laughs> <laughs> all right the next question is for greg and it's from clay 
Coppinger. The question is, what is the best resource for someone looking for corrective exercises for their particular faulty movement pattern? So, Greg, would you, uh, I mean, this is a big one. A lot of people ask about these. There's some buzzwords in there. We're talking about movement patterns and corrective exercises. I think this does necessitate a nuclear knowledge bomb, if you'd be so kind. Absolutely. So I think I think I, I will answer your question with two questions. The first is, what do you mean by corrective exercise? And the second is, what do you mean by faulty movement pattern? Um, so not to be too much of a cagey little bitch, but I think that, uh, what? That's an aggressive way to... <laughs> it's, it's a derogatory statement aimed at myself. There's fair, no other yeah. victims here. That's true. Um, but yeah, so I... I think that um, I think that these are buzzwords that get thrown around a lot in the fitness space, and in general, I'm skeptical of anything purporting to be a corrective exercise that is not uh, an exercise prescribed by a physical therapist to treat a specific diagnosed musculoskeletal condition. Um, otherwise, I think it's generally a buzzword that is being thrown around to perpetuate the idea that humans are fragile and made of glass and that if you're not moving in some particular way that someone who has like an idealized view of biomechanics views as optimal like if you're not doing exactly that then you're gonna fuck yourself up and there's just not much if any evidence for that um so in general, uh, I think you adapt to what you typically do, and generally things are fine. I think that there are probably situations where some movement patterns are likely to be more injurious than others. So, you know, if someone's doing single leg landings or cutting, like if they're a, a like field sport athlete, and they're doing that with a lot of functional knee valgus, probably not good like that's probably not great for acl like non-contact acl tear risk um or if someone is lifting with just a tremendous amount of spinal flexion i think that's probably not the best idea either um but beyond like just some some basic things like that i would be very very hesitant to refer to something as a faulty movement pattern um and then as far as corrective exercise goes, again, I think I would be skeptical of a corrective exercise implies you're fixing something that's wrong. And generally things aren't as wrong as people think they are. So, so like, unless again, you're, you're using a tremendous amount of knee valgus or a tremendous amount of spinal flexion and what you're doing isn't causing you pain or discomfort, I would be hesitant to call it a faulty movement pattern in the first place. Um, but I think, I think in general, if you're kind of concerned maybe with just like lifting from an aesthetic perspective where like maybe you video yourself and you're like, man, that doesn't look the way I feel like it's supposed to. Um, or like maybe you, you are doing something and getting a little discomfort from it and you know that if you could use another technique, it may be a little bit more comfortable. Um, I can still hopefully give some practical recommendations for that. 
So um, the first thing, I think the first question is, whatever your idealized good form is, the first question is, can you do it in the first place? So, you know, are they positions that you can get into with either no loads or very light loads? Um, or are they just positions that maybe you don't have the mobility for in the first place? Um, if they are positions that you can get into, but maybe as you start loading them, your techniques start shifting, then I think one of the things to do is just start by practicing those techniques with lighter loads. And then also use a little bit of logic to maybe see what muscles could be limiting you from maintaining that technique as loads get heavier and then address those lagging muscles. So for example, maybe when you squat, uh, up to 70, 80% of your max, your squats look pretty good. And then when they get pretty heavy, you shift to like a crazy hip dominant, super good morning type squat. You've, you, you view that as a faulty movement pattern and you want to fix it. Well, what's going on there is when your knees are, when your hips shift back and put you in that good morning position, your knees are also shifting back. That's pretty substantially decreasing uh, the external knee extension moment arm uh, or knee flexion moment arm imposed by the load. And so I think that's a pretty clear indication in that case that your quads are probably weak. And so you're shifting more of the load to the stronger muscles and your hip extensors. And so in that case, like I think the way to fix that quote unquote faulty movement pattern would probably just be to get your quads stronger so they can stand up to heavier loads. Um, and I think you can use that general type of troubleshooting process for, for most exercises. Uh, if you have what you're terming a faulty movement pattern because you simply can't get into the positions that you would need to get in to do it, you know, maybe you just have poor mobility and just generally working on stretching and improving mobility over time will help with that. Uh, or it could just be that it's a range of motion that your bone structure doesn't allow for. So as I mentioned before, um, earlier in this episode, the average passive bent knee hip range of motion um, that people typically have is somewhere close to the hip range of motion that people need to do deadlifts uh, from the floor or also to squat below parallel, like the, the maximum hip flexion is relatively similar. So it could just be a situation where your body doesn't allow you to get in the positions that you would need to, to use the form that you would want to use. And maybe it's not because you have tight muscles, maybe your joints just don't allow for it. So, you know, maybe in that case, you just kind of have to suck it up and maybe not deadlift from the floor and maybe not squat below parallel. And that's fine. Like it's not ideal if you're trying to be a competitive power lifter, but if that is the case for you, that's possibly an indication that competing in powerlifting may not be a great thing for you to do. Um, and then I think the, um, yeah, like th those would be my general recommendations. Um, so, you know, first off, just look to see whether you can get in the positions in the first place. If you can't try to see if it's like a muscular thing or a bony thing, if it's just, you have some tight muscles, work on strengthening them. If you can get in those positions, but you start breaking down under load, 
Um, just start by practicing the technique that you want to acquire with loads that allow you to use that technique. Try to build up gradually over time until the loads you can use good technique with are something relatively close to your max loads. Um, if it seems to be loading is exacerbating technique issues, try to see if there's a specific muscular weakness that could be causing that, that you can target and work on improving. Um, and then the last thing is like, you know, maybe most of the time your technique is good and it's what you want it to be. But when you go for true one rep maxes, things start breaking down. <laughs> at that point, I don't think there's too much you can do. Like at a, at a max, you're you're maxed out. Like something's got to give. There is a weak link in the chain somewhere. Like it's pretty unlikely that all of your muscles are going to hit their maximum capacity at the exact same time. So like, yeah, as you're approaching a max, like a lot. So for some people, their maxes look just as good as like a, a single at 90%. But like some people, I think just their maxes are ugly and they're kind of always going to be ugly. <laughs> and, uh, and that's just how it is. So I mean, yeah, if your technique is generally good until you go for a max, it's potentially worth just experimenting with doing more maxes and training to see if it's less of a muscular thing and more of just a, you know, hitting a one rep max is a skill you're not good at because you haven't done it much type thing. And maybe your technique at max will improve if you do max more. Maybe it won't, I, but I'm a little bit less concerned if someone is just having technique breakdown because they're going for maxes. Like that's, that's, not uncommon and I don't think that's indicative of anything wrong um so yeah th those are my general thoughts but I think the biggest point I want to make here is that don't be too swift to refer to something as a faulty movement pattern like I, I've tr I've tried to say like quote unquote faulty movement pattern uh every time I've used that phrase when answering this question because most of the time like your movement patterns aren't as faulty as you think they are. Human bodies are pretty resilient and tend to adapt to the stresses you put them through. Um, and if you think you have like an actual faulty movement pattern that is causing pain and maybe injurious, talk to a physical therapist about that. Um, and if you're looking for corrective exercises, again, get those from the people who actually went to school to know what corrective exercises to prescribe, which again would be physical therapists. Well, that knowledge bomb was certainly of nuclear proportions and presumably there's bound to be some kind of nuclear knowledge fallout. So there's two remaining questions. Um, they're kind of related. So I'm going to ask them at the same time. So the first one is from zero to fit journal. And it's basically, I want to start out in the fitness industry as a trainer. What are some of the best reading materials and courses you'd recommend for me to start out with for nutrition and program design? The second question is related, but it's more from the academic perspective. So this one, one is from CPT Harrison. And the question is, as someone who wants to get into exercise science at university, what are some of the biggest tips you can give a newbie who's wanting to get big brain? So for trainers and for people who want to enter the academic field, how do they make that happen? Yeah, so um, I think we're both going to take both of these, but I'll I'll start with the first one. So um, if you want to get into training, you want to read some stuff to to know how to be a good trainer. 
I would recommend The Art and Science of Lifting, which you can buy at strongerbyscience.com. I would recommend uh, subscribing to Mass Monthly Applications in Strength Sport, which you can do so from strongerbyscience.com. And honestly, I think that covers your bases. I, I can't think of anything else that someone would possibly need to to equip them to be a trainer. Well, no, because if they needed something else, we would have put it in. Yeah, for sure. But, but no, so to actually answer that question, one of, one of the things people do ask about a lot is like what certification they should get. And the thing is like most of the certification courses have most of the same information. Um, and I think your best bet, honestly, is just whatever gym you would like to work at or whatever job you would like to get in the fitness industry. Just the person who would be your boss if you got that job, just go into the gym and ask them like, hey, I'm interested in potentially getting a job here. What certifications do you like to see from trainers you hire? And whatever they say, those are the certs you get. Because um, ultimately, you will learn some stuff in a certification course. But the biggest thing they give you from a utilitarian perspective is they just help you get your foot in the door. So whatever search you need to get that foot in the door, that's the one I would recommend going for. Um, so that's, you know, actually getting into the industry. If you want to actually be good at what you do, um, I think there you can learn some stuff from reading and listening to people. But I think the best ex the best learning you can probably do is from hands-on learning and observation of people who know what they're doing. So if you can find a more experienced coach or trainer who knows what they're doing uh, to take you under their wing as in like a mentor-mentee relationship or even like maybe a formal apprenticeship position, that would be great. Like th that you're... There's a lot that you can't pick up from a book that you pick up a lot better from seeing someone wield the craft that knows what they're doing. So I'd also strongly recommend that. From a knowledge acquisition perspective, like I said, you'll probably learn some stuff in a certification course. Um, but I strongly recommend everyone read at least an introductory anatomy and physiology and exercise physiology textbook. That's not a super popular suggestion, and I've been recommending this for like seven or eight years, and I think maybe 10 people have actually done this. But I mean, I get it, like textbooks are boring, but if you read like, they're like 600 pages long-ish, read about 20 pages a day, you get through each one of them in a month apiece, and like that's not a, 20 pages a day and spending two months doing it. That's not an unrealistic amount of time for you to invest to build a foundation of knowledge that hopefully will help you for the next 30 years. So I'd recommend just getting the basic knowledge of the field of anatomy and physiology and exercise physiology. Um, and then f to recommend some products that aren't just shilling our own stuff. I think uh, Eric Helms regrettably wrote some good books in the muscle and strength pyramid book. So like, even though we're, we're feuding with him and are, are very much upset with him from a personal perspective. Uh, I think his books are actually quite good. Yeah. You can support a thing a person did without supporting that person, Correct. who they are or everything else they did. Correct. Yes. I would add on to that. Um, almost kind of reiterate the textbook recommendation is not common or popular, but it's the one that I probably feel most strongly about. 
Um, if you were to read, I think one of the best undergrad ex-phys textbooks is by Ketchin McArdle. Mm-hmm. If you were to read that, reading a good ex-phys textbook can get you so far in, in terms of understanding what's going down on the training side. For sure. So do, do you want to lead off on our second closing question? Uh, what someone would recommend for getting into exercise science, an exercise science program at a university and what the biggest tips are for a newbie who wants to get, quote, big-brained? That's a good question. Certainly, I can tell you what I did as an exercise science student that I think contributed most to, like, getting into the program and doing relatively well within it. And for me, the, the first thing was, like, if you really, really love exercise science, that's going to help a lot. And that sounds stupid, but a lot of people in exercise science programs don't actually like exercise science. They, yeah. They, the, they view oh, exercise man. science as a very useful way to get uh, a very convenient group of prerequisite courses done. Because what you'll find is, it, especially I don't know about internationally, but in American higher education, if you get like an undergrad exercise science degree and take one or two courses extra you could go into like almost any applied health field. Mm -hmm. You could do med school, physical therapy school. Uh, you could go to a master's program in the field. I mean, there, there are so many avenues you could take from it that there are a lot of people who are like, <laughs> I've talked to people. It's like, oh, what got you into exercise science? And they're like, I just want to be a dentist, man. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, it's the most convenient way to get the the credits. Yeah, like you you don't need every class that you would take as like a chemistry or biology major. Like some of them are overkill. Um, but it's like take exercise science and maybe add like genetics and micro and depending on what your school requires, possibly ochem if that's not required for exercise science and you're there. Yeah. So I think having passion for the actual field and the content within is huge. Um, overstudying is huge. So uh, I had a professor, I had a couple of professors that kind of teased me because of how I overstudied. They'd kind of like make fun of me, but it was because I really enjoyed the material and I wanted it to be in my brain for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do is I would go take notes during the class. I would walk away from the class and rewrite the notes again at the library. Um, so I would just transcribe my notes by hand once and then a second time. And then as I reviewed for the final, I would try to recreate those notes from memory again, writing it a third time. So like I overstudied hard and spent a lot of time in the library just thinking about it. And so the the result of that was there was one time where... <laughs> This isn't even a good thing. Um, the professor was like multiple choice. And they're like, which of these four options it would be best? And I was like, well, based on the exact numbers you gave for all of these in the lecture, technically it would fit between C and D. And he just kind of like sighed and rolled his eyes. And he's like, dude, just just pick one. Come on. <laughs> but I was like, none of these are literally the exact numbers you gave us last time. Mm -hmm. Which, you know... I, I knew the, the general, it was like a glycogen replenishment kind of thing. So like I knew the general premise, but I was like, you know, technically none of these are the exact numbers. And he's like, dude, you suck. So, but like overstudying with obviously the intention is to understand the themes and the principles, but 
the more you hammer at home, the better, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then spending time and actually getting advice from professors. Like I had a professor that I was really close with. Um, and whenever I had some random bodybuilding question that excited me, I would just show up to office hours and I'd say, oh, no, I'm good on the class. What do you think of this? <laughs> and I don't know if they necessarily loved it at first because they're like, you know, they're busy. They they have like actual work shit to do. Yeah. But over time, it became very endearing that it was like, you know what? I'm an exercise science professor. And during office hours while I'm here, someone's going to come chat with me about exercise science, mm-hmm. which is fun. And uh, the more you develop those relationships, uh, you you engage more with the material, you enjoy the field more, and you you really um, reinforce that passion for it. And then when it when it comes down to it, um, having good relationships with professors that that are genuine, um, those can really help you out along the way. Like you you don't want to be like the really annoying person who's clearly trying to get something from it. Like yeah, that's not endearing. <laughs> A lot of people do that, and I don't think they understand just how transparent it is. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I, I can I can say say this as someone who's on the opposite side of it a little bit now. Um, like when I go to conferences at this point, like I'm a known quantity. There are people who want to network with me, and it's it's painfully obvious within two minutes of talking to someone. If they just like my work and they, you know, just want to chat about something or if they're just interested in making a contact and they're absolutely going to ask me for something within the next like two months, like no matter how smooth you think you are, it's probably painfully obvious if you're just in in the case in the in this circumstance here, like just sucking up to a professor for a recommendation letter. Like they're gonna know. They're gonna uh, yeah. Know. It, it's like what happens is like a, a lot of the application processes are on like set annual timelines. Yeah, and so it's always like four and a half days before the due date. <laughs> like all of a sudden, the, their their office hours are attended. Like there's like a twenty thousand percent increase in attendance, and everybody's like, "No, I just you know I love the class. I figured I'd drop by and see how you're doing." Also, I in an unrelated note. I am indeed applying to something. <laughs> yeah. So I that actually happened to me applying to grad school a little bit. So the the department the the exercise science department at the school I went to had three professors and I was really close with two of them. Like one of them even before I graduated, like I was on a first name basis with him. Uh he was fresh out of school. Like we were we were buddies. Like he came over to my house for dinner. Once I graduated and it wasn't weird anymore, like he came over and like visited us and like brought his family and we ate dinner together. He invited me over to his house just to hang out. So I was super close with him. I was pretty close with one of the other professors. He was, uh, he was a track coach and he personally was into bodybuilding and strength training. So like we would talk about training quite a bit. The third professor Ah, man, we didn't dislike each other, but we just had very different personalities. So like I tried to get to know him and it was just kind of painful. And then when it came time to apply for grad school, 
most of the schools I applied to wanted two letters of recommendations, but the ones that wanted three, I was like, shit, <laughs> like, how is this going to go? Um, and this was like a small school. I think there were 30 people in exercise science in my graduating class. And so, you know, e- even in that type of situation, and and I mean, I was a good student, so he did, I assume, write me a good letter of recommendation. But, you know, I, I was even a little bit, uncomfortable with asking one of those professors for a letter so if if you're if you're at a big school it probably takes more effort to get on professors radars in the first place and three letters of recommendation is quite a bit like it it takes some effort to actually form a relationship with three professors like that especially if they're super busy my chemistry class that i took had like 600 people and if (laughs) If the professor forgot the microphone or it wasn't working, we didn't try. <laughs> so like, yeah, in a class like that or at a university that's pretty big, you, it, it's probably not a bad idea, um, even if it's not completely in line with um, your preferences to just sit up front and center, make sure you stay on task. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, when you enter the room, say, hey, when you leave, stop by the office when you need something. Even that alone goes a long way, but like, if you feel uncomfortable asking someone for a recommendation letter, that probably means you didn't put in the amount of FaceTime that you you ought to have put in. Yeah. Uh, so the other re- recommendations that I would add were, um, one, if you're in high school, like if you're still in high school and are maybe like a junior and you're thinking about applying to college to go the exercise science route, Make sure you get good grades uh, and try to get as many scholarships as you can because college is getting more expensive. I'm assuming I'm talking to Americans here. Um, College is getting more expensive, substantially so, year over year. And most of the jobs that you're going to get fresh out of school with an exercise science degree don't pay all that well. So the more you can minimize the amount of student loans you have to take out, the better. Um, so yeah, like start doing the work now to try to apply for every scholarship you can getting as good of grades as possible to hopefully get some merit scholarships. That's huge. Like you don't want to be 22 years old coming out of school without a job yet and 50 grand in debt. Uh, And you, you said that you're assuming you're talking to people in America, even though you know very well that our audience is largely not from America. It's like 50% from America. Right. So if you're not from America, which is a decent percentage, um, if this makes no sense to you, you should be very glad that this makes no sense to you. God, the student loans in America are, are, as you would say, Eric, mental at this point. Very mental. Um, okay. So the next thing, so Eric gave some recommendations based on the assumption that you are actually doing the basic stuff and you are studying enough to overstudy. Um, but, but I mean, one of the things that when I was going through school, there, I mean, there were probably 10 of us that took a bunch of the same classes together that all tended to get pretty good grades. And then the other like two thirds of the class all tended to struggle a lot. And the biggest difference, honestly, was just that we were the ones that sat in the front of every class, like Eric mentioned. Um, you actually take notes. There are a lot of people who just don't take notes, which blows my mind. Uh, again, if you're American and you're paying like $700 per credit hour to be in that class, you're paying probably $2,100, $2,200 a class. Like, 
use that time, take notes, like, so you can hopefully retain what was said in the lectures. And then the other big thing is actually doing the reading. Um, like most classes have assigned reading from a textbook and a lot of people will just rely on what is said in the lectures. And then if you have a few test questions that, you know, were from the readings you were supposed to do, but not from the textbook, like professors will slip those into a lot of tests to see who is actually doing everything they're supposed to for the course. And so many people don't ever read their textbooks. So like read your fucking textbooks. Um, and then if it's a small enough class to have class discussions, um, people retain information better if it's participatory. So, you know, not trying to, you know, be an annoying tryhard and the person who's talking with the professor the whole time in class. But if there is class discussion, if you participate in it, you will probably retain that information better because if there is an active particip participatory element to learning, retention is a little bit better. Um, then in addition to what Eric was saying about overstudying, two things that I would strongly recommend are one, try to study a little bit over time instead of having to cram the night before the test. Um, and that and also go back and look at notes from classes you're never going to have to take a test for again. So um, if, for example, your program has two exercise physiology classes and you took X-Phys 1 last semester and you're taking X-Phys 2 this semester, at some point during the semester, like three or four times, just go back and review your notes from X-Phys 1. Um, even though you're not going to be tested on that, one, that helps make sure the foundation is still there for the material you're currently learning. And two, the, the, the longer information sticks in your head, the more likely it will be to stick in your head in perpetuity. So if a class runs for four months and you, know, you study for the final and whatnot and you kind of remember the stuff that you learned four months ago, like that's cool, but that could be totally out of your head in five years. But if you take a class and then 18 months later you take another class and you're reviewing the notes from the class you took 18 years ago and you review them often enough that when you look through those notes, all of the information still makes sense and is still fresh in your head. Once you've retained information for 18 months, couple years, that is probably going to stick for several more years after that point. Um, so just going back and reviewing old stuff that you don't have to review to get grades tomorrow um, is going to set you up really well for the next, you know, 10 or 20 years. Um, and in general, uh, if you're interested in learning and getting good grades just overall, and this will help you really with pretty much any subject you want to learn in life, I would recommend a review paper by Soderstrom et al. called Learning Versus Performance, an Integrative Review. Um, it's, a pr it's a pretty straightforward paper to read. It's going to be useful it's going to be interesting to fitness people as well because it talks about both like learning knowledge but also motor learning and how those two things are are related to each other and principles that are uh, kind of universal in the learning process. Um, and so a key thing to note is that learning and performance are different. So a rough definition of learning is acquiring knowledge or skill that you can use again at a later date. And performance is just how well you can do today, basically. 
And so I think a lot of people, and, and this is where like overstudying is interesting. So if you take notes from a class, look over the notes a couple times, you may know everything that is on those notes. And if you look at them a fourth time, they will look just as comfortable and fresh as when you looked at them the third time and you're like, well, okay, I'm done learning this material. It's all in there. It sticks. So at, at that point, your performance is good. Uh, your knowledge of the notes at that point in time is quite good. Continuing to review them isn't acutely improving your performance when reviewing the notes. But learning and like long-term retention does benefit from overstudying. So it's kind of like um, if you are a musician and you're trying to learn a difficult piece of music, you practice that piece of music, you get to the point that you can play it perfectly. And if you get to the point that you can play it perfectly once, your performance is as good as it can be. You performed it perfectly one time. But that doesn't mean you've necessarily learned it if you or learned it super well. If you get to the point that you can play it perfectly 20 times in a row, your performance isn't improving as you keep practicing it those additional 19 times. But then if you have to play that piece of music again next week, you will play it better from having played it perfectly 20 times than having played it once. So performance didn't continue improving, but learning did continue to occur. And so I think a lot of people do tend to understudy. They study to the point that when I look at my notes right now, they look good. They all make sense to me. And they don't keep studying for, you know, a, a substantial amount of additional time to make sure it's really, really going to stick. Um, so, th so that's like one of the principles from that Soderstrom review. Um, another thing that is also super, super useful when it comes to learning virtually any subject is taking tests. Um, and so people view test taking as something different from the learning process, but test taking is actually a really good way to learn something because it forces you to engage kind of more forcefully with the material. It's easy to passively read over notes, think like, oh, okay, like this kind of all makes sense. But then when it comes time to actually take a quiz or test and the rubber meets the road, you have to think about each question. And so the information you already know, it forces you to think a little bit harder about it to make sure you can put the correct answer on the test. Uh, so that helps further ingrain the stuff you already know. And the stuff you don't know, it forces you to become acutely aware of the fact you don't know it. So then you know how to do more targeted studying moving forward. So if, um, like whatever subject you're trying to learn, if you can go online and find like an old test or quiz over that type of information, doing that before you start actually studying it and a couple times during the studying process, that will help you learn and retain information better than you will just from kind of passively studying and reading over notes. Um, that's, that I think, is, that's one of the keys, or that's one of the things that there's the most research supporting that it being super, super good for learning. Like taking tests, testing yourself, testing your ability, testing your knowledge, as part of the learning process, there's a ton of research to verify its efficacy, but no one does that when they're studying. Like that that's one of that's something that everyone can do to make studying more effective and efficient. Definitely. I have two last things to add here. Um 
my program was weird. I didn't get into exercise science coursework until the third year of college um, because they wouldn't let us. And which is okay. I, I like the program overall. It was a really nice program. But uh, I did a lot of outside reading before I got my formal co- coursework in exercise science. So if you like haven't started college yet, this would apply to you big time. And what I found was a lot of that outside, just like evidence-based fitness reading really gave me a nice foundation to build on. And then once I was in the coursework, it made me wrestle with topics that I was learning in class in a different context. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge part of learning as well, is being able to translate not just the exact verbiage that you're hearing, but making you wrestle with the principles and apply it to other situations. Mm -hmm. So like, I, I think keeping up with your outside interests in exercise science is huge when you become an exercise science student, like, like your, your non-academic interest in exercise science related things it is a really nice complimentary thing to keep in the mix. And then finally, when you're studying as a student, you know, you could view it as you've got a test coming up. What's the bare minimum score you could live with. And so you, you could operationalize your studying as the purpose here is to get at least X percent on this upcoming exam. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, I think it makes more sense, depending on what your goals are, like I would imagine when you were studying for exams in your undergrad and graduate uh, coursework, you are probably thinking, how is this information going to make me better at doing fitness things for the rest of my career? Correct. How, How am I going to use this to establish not the perception of expertise, but actual expertise in this field? Right. Like it's about learning the material and being able to use it proficiently for the next 40 years. It's not just like, I got to get like a 90. Mm -hmm. So if you use that as your framework for how you view learning, I think it's going to make a huge, huge difference. I also just think the, I think the level people shoot for matters a lot as well. Like if, if you're, if you're trying to learn information, so just if you do want to focus on grades, for example, if if this is information that you think you're going to be using for the next 30, 40 years for your career, you shouldn't really be shooting for Bs and just grades that are good enough. Like the number you should be shooting for is 100% on everything you do. Um, and like, obviously that's that's overkill. Like you don't need that to graduate or graduate with honors or anything like that. But your goal shouldn't be to graduate with the degree. The goal should be to learn everything well so you can use it for the next 30 or 40 years so like you know obviously being perfect at everything is an unrealistic standard but i don't think that it's an unreasonable goal to aim for because i mean ultimately that's what is going to be more likely to set you up for success 10 20 years from now yeah i mean you know in chemistry i would get grades and be like ah all right but like (laughs) On my ex-phys exams at every level of, of schooling, if I got like a 98 because I missed one out of 50, I would look at that question. I'd be like, God, this is so embarrassing. Yeah. No, same for sure. Yeah. Like you should, I mean, I don't want to like reflect my, I'm a bit mental. I don't want to encourage people to be that way. But like, I honestly felt like if I missed three out of a hundred questions, 
I was embarrassed three times. Like I felt I would internalize that, which is probably not healthy, but also is like, you're going to learn shit if that's your natural visceral reaction to getting something wrong. No, I, I, I was the exact same way. And if I missed a question, I was going to beat myself up about it. Yeah. And I was going to like dig into my notes right then and try to figure out how I failed myself <laughs> by not acquiring the knowledge necessary to answer that question right. Yeah, and, and that's really important. You were beating yourself up. You weren't bothering your poor professor saying that their question was stupid. That's a really key component there. I mean, sometimes I did. <laughs> I'm sure you did. If it was a stupid question. Yeah, that, that's fair. Sometimes there are stupid questions. I mean. And, and another thing to note is like, if you are someone who's kind of wired to be a perfectionist, there's, I feel, I feel. I feel like that's generally unhealthy, but it can it can be more or it can be useful or not useful. Like just beating yourself up about it doesn't help you with much, but beating yourself up to try to figure out like how you cannot do something wrong in the future and then making like tangible changes to reduce your risk of making the same mistake again can be quite useful. Big time. All right. Well, I think that does it for this week's episode. Um, do you have anything to add before we sign off? The whole thing with knowledge bombs and knowledge anthrax and all that shit, that was a bit, it's the dumbest fucking expression. We, <laughs> we were trying to highlight that in this episode. Um, and please never say it in our presence ever again. I won't be mad at you, but I, I will. I will slightly judge you i think that's fair to say yeah okay all right but even if you use that phrase we still love you thank you so much for listening uh take care if you have questions for future episodes be sure to find those links in the description of this episode uh, you can submit those questions via facebook instagram or twitter threads thanks for listening and we'll see you next time thanks for listening to the stronger by science podcast now greg and i are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.